You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Everyone loves a good story. I'm reminded of one. Her name was Mrs. Mallard. When she was approached by her sister, Josephine, Josephine approached her carefully because she knew her sister, Mrs. Mallard, had a heart condition. She knew she would take the news very hard. In fact, it was Richards, her husband's friend, who heard the news first. He wanted to make sure it was true because it seemed unbearably difficult to say. And so after hearing the news that Mrs. Mallard's husband had died in a train accident, Richards, the husband's friend, confirmed it, not once but twice. Is indeed this true? Trying to find out the best person to break the news to Mrs. Mallard about her husband's passing away, his sudden death, he appealed to her sister, Josephine. Josephine comes and Brings the news to her. It's so hard to say it. At some point, you just have to say it. He's gone. For good. Not like other wives in such a time where they might just live in denial and resist such news. No, Mrs. Mallard took it quickly and immediately, and she just overwhelmingly collapsed in tears. Shocked at the pain of hearing this news. Falling in her sister's arms, she cried accordingly, over and over with such great anguish. Finally, feeling as if she'd cried every tear, had spent every emotion, she finally just said, I want to be alone. And she left her sister, and she went upstairs to her house, closed the door, and just collapsed into that chair. The chair that she had sat in many times before had thought not much about, except at that point as she sat in the chair, she looked out the window and saw clouds that were covering the blue sky, heard the birds that were chirping, just feeling an overwhelming sense of grief as she processed the reality that her husband was gone. But as she sat there, completely exhausted, something surprising came upon her, something she did not know where it came from, but she felt it crawling up her as a point of awareness. Until it finally started to come out in short, brief, almost unhearable whispers. Free. 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 She was not surprised as if some demonic of emotion was overtaking her and surprising her, she was now vexed with this new reality as she is processing the news of her husband that now this grief that had once overrun her has now been replaced with a sense of exhilaration, freedom. She knew that she would cry yet again when that day came when she would go to his funeral, seeing her husband's tender hands folded on his chest in the casket, but she knew that for this time she was 
finally free. Not because he had been a tyrannical husband, in no ways abusive to her, in no ways unkind, only speaking loving to her and gentle, but she was free. Free for what, you might ask? Free to do what she wanted to do. When she wanted to do it. Where she wanted to do it. With whomever she wanted to do it. Free from her marriage. Now no more. Meanwhile, she sat in that chair looking out that window, processing these emotions. Unbeknownst to her, her sister Josephine was kneeling in the door, listening for her sister, wondering, is she okay in there? And she began to call out for her, Louise, Louise, come to the door. Are you okay? Don't stay in there. You're making yourself sick. Louise was not sick. Louise was exhilarated. And to her sister Josephine's surprise, she opens the door and greets her, not with an overwhelming exhilaration of anguish, but now with seemingly resolve and settled joy. As she now imagines her future free. Wrapping her arm around her sister's waist, they begin to descend the stairs. Richards, her husband's friend, is at the bottom of the stairs. But to the surprise of everybody, someone starts coming into the door. Who is this person? Lo and behold, it is Mr. Mallard, who turns out was not on the train at all. He was in a different place. A little worn for the day, but coming in with his bag and his umbrella as Richards, the friend, steps in front of him, only to hear the excruciating cry of Louise as she collapses in the arms of her sister, Josephine. The doctors would later say when they came that she had died of a heart disease, of a joy that kills. Stories like this are stories that come with a twist. Stories where you expected one thing to take place, and to your surprise, another takes place altogether. This story is a story written by Kate Chopin titled, The Story of an Hour, plot twist included. But friends, what we have before us, in my hands and I trust in your hands, is not the story of an hour. It is the story of a lifetime and beyond. And it too comes with plot twists and turns in seemingly the most unlikeliest of places, the most unimaginable of people, and the least expected events that take place. Just joining us this morning, we return back to the Gospel of Matthew. I encourage you to open your Bibles there, though I want to say at the outset, for our time in Matthew, we will not be in a single passage. We will, in some sense, be in the entire passage of Matthew. If you're not familiar with Matthew, and if I say something like turn to Matthew, you turn to the person to your left or to your right and you say, Are you Matthew? Are you Matthew? Who is Matthew? 
Friend, let me just assure you, you are in the right place here this morning, because this morning we're going to learn about Matthew. It's not the person seated around you, though maybe one of them is named Matthew. It's the book in print in front of you in the midst of 65 other books of the Bible. For all 66 of these independent writings, over 1,400 years of human history recorded in their life, though the time is even more expansive that they write about, over 40 different authors actually all orchestrated by one divine author. You see, friends, that's the mystery of the Bible. It's both written by men and by God. The Bible says this itself about itself. In Peter, it talks about how men were moved along by the Holy Spirit, spoke these things to us that we might hear from God. And that's exactly what we have this morning. To understand Matthew, though, as some of you maybe are new to Matthew, maybe you've been with us a few weeks, maybe a few months, and perhaps even a few years. To understand Matthew, to put it back together again, to see it in whole, is to actually require us to step back from Matthew, to step away from the New Testament, and look at the bigger picture. Who are these people? What is this place? What is happening here that makes this make sense out there? The setting of the world in which we find ourselves in, in the very beginning of Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of all of human history, is that the world is the cosmos that God made. He made it as a temple and planned, planted a garden in the middle of it, and he appeared in it. God appeared. He didn't just create the cosmos, the world, he created a man and a woman in his likeness, Adam and Eve. He created this man in his likeness, this woman in his likeness. They were charged to expand the borders of the garden until the glory of the Lord covered the dry land as the waters covered the sea. But the image and likeness, Adam and Eve, failed. They rebelled. They were exiled from God's presence in the garden. Adam and Eve did not accomplish what they were called to do. From Adam, we eventually get Noah. And from Noah, we eventually get Abraham. And God made promises to everybody, you and me, through Abraham. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, these promises are made. And they're passed down through Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. And sold into slavery as Joseph was into Egypt to prepare for the beginning of Israel there. And then God raised up Moses. For those of you who are Jewish, you know Moses. You grew up hearing about Moses. Moses is spoken of highly and respectfully, and rightly so. Moses brings judgment on Egypt, and through the plagues culminated in the Passover, Israel made her exit from Egypt and was baptized into Moses, into the Red Sea, by going through the Red Sea, and ate the bread from heaven and drank water from the spiritual rock in the hope of the coming Messiah. Israel would go out to Mount Sinai where the nation entered into a marriage covenant with Yahweh only to then again commit spiritual adultery. Deja vu. Round two. God in all his grace communicates so clearly, so abundantly, so graciously. This time not to Adam. This time to the people of Israel. And yet, they too respond in rejection, and rebellion. And so now, then, there is a new exodus. A new exile, then. 
This new exodus that was being promised in by the prophets that would come later looks forward to a future redemption from slavery, a decisive judgment of the enemies of God through which he, God, would save his people. God kept his promises to Israel when his people were able to return to the land, but it was only in part. Though they were back in the land, the desert was yet to bloom like the Garden of Eden. The enemies of God and his people were yet to be defeated once for all. And the spirit was yet to be poured out on all flesh. The new and greater David was yet to sit on the throne of his father. Just as Joseph had been sent to Egypt ahead of the people, so also Daniel had been sent into exile before others. We have Joseph, we have Daniel. Sharing a similar pattern, both Joseph and Daniel rose to prominence in foreign courts. Both preceded the deliverer and pointed forward for him. Joseph preceded the one who would lead the exodus from Egypt. Daniel preceded the one who would lead the new and clear exodus and return from exile. When the curtain of the Old Testament closes... We're left with so many questions. And then there's silence for 400 years. And then a voice crying out in the wilderness, quoting Isaiah 40. of one to come to save his people. A baptizer preaching about repentance for God had sent him to prepare the way. And that takes us to the book of Matthew. Matthew begins seemingly in the unlikeliest of places. Can you imagine watching a movie today where it starts off with the credits. You know those five to seven minutes of informational things at the back of the movie that no one watches unless you or a friend of yours was in it? Imagine starting a movie with those at the beginning. You would grab the fast forward button and say, let's get to the movie. That's how Matthew feels in the beginning. It starts with genealogy. Birth records, really, Matthew? Birth records? I mean, outside of a few curious people here who maybe get on Ancestry.com, want to know their history, most people, really? I don't even know the name of my great-grandparent. You want me to be interested in someone else's genealogy records for centuries and centuries? Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. He's saying, if I may have a minute of your time, I want to show you something about someone that will blow your mind. And he begins to take from Adam all the way down to this Jewish man in Nazareth. An ancestry record where Matthew says, He's here. He's here. We've been waiting, 
We've been speculating. We've been wondering. He's here. He's here. In fact, Matthew's like, oh, in case you're not convinced by the genealogical records, give me a second if you can. Let me tell you how his life began. Let me explain to you how it all took place. That'll blow your mind. And that's exactly what he does. In the earliest chapters of Matthew, Matthew shows how Jesus relives the history of Israel through the nature of his birth, the exile to and sojourn in Egypt, where he with his parents, his mom and his stepdad, God is his father, are having to leave to go into, of all places, Egypt. Why? Because someone, just like Moses, when he was a child, someone wants to kill him. And so as a result of this, sojourns into Egypt and then has a mini exodus from Egypt as he returns to the promised land. And Israel, as Israel went through the sea, so Jesus passes through the waters of baptism, overcomes temptation in the wilderness, ascends the mountain to teach God's word like Moses did, then conquers the land like all of Israel's prophets. And like David, he faced opposition from within Israel. And in spite of the moral authority of his teaching, in spite of the mighty power of his healings, in spite of his ability to undo any polemical arguments against him, Faithless Israel opposes him. And the exile is coming to fulfillment. Jesus is crucified. Guess what happens? The temple is destroyed by the curtain being torn in two. You don't need this anymore. I now will pour my spirit out upon my people. And they will be a priesthood. No representation needed. You have the Son of God now. This is what Matthew is teaching. Now, I understand how this can be perhaps lost. I understand that a lot of people have not read the Bible in its entirety, and those who have are like, oh, there's so many names here, so many faces. I don't know what's going on. Somebody please help. I get that. And even for ourselves. It's been 95 sermons and counting, counting this one. 95 sermons in two and a half years we, Grace Church, have spent in the book of Matthew. You might feel like if you've been with us for all 95 of those sermons, depending on how you thought it's gone, you might be saying, I'm thankful he's done. I'm okay with that. I received that. Or you might be saying, can you remind me where we have been can you put it all back together again? All the pieces now put into one part that I might understand it completely as the picture it is. And so it's with that in mind, I hope to do so. What is Matthew trying to teach? I'll give you three things. And you're going to see them as you go through this in your Bible. Matthew, first of all, Jesus fulfills the prophecies of God's word. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of God's word. I've referenced this before, but let me just have you look at it again. Go to Matthew chapter one. After describing the genealogy of Jesus and then the birth of Jesus, in Matthew chapter one, verse 22, Matthew says, 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he cites the prophet, Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. And in chapter 2, verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, as the inquiring about where this Savior can be found. Again, chapter 2, verse 15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 17, then was fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Again, verse 23 of chapter 2, that was spoken by the prophets that might be fulfilled. Friends, we're, we're only two chapters into Matthew, and five different times Matthew is like, hey, nothing new here, <laughs> nothing new here. Just trying to connect the dots for those of you who know this, that you might understand this. That in having heard that you might not now see who he is. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah, it's all been said, it's all been promised, and every promise God makes, he keeps, and that's exactly what's going on here. Matthew wanted to show that although the gospel did bring changes, these changes were a fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, not the betrayal. Jesus is saying this repeatedly. In fact, if you will, go to Matthew chapter 5. Look at what Jesus says at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 17. Sermon on the Mount being these three chapters, 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. I've come to fulfill them. Matthew is repeatedly pointing out, this is the fulfillment. This isn't some alternative religion. This isn't some new religion. This is a continuation of what God has prophesied has now come to pass. Matthew's trying to teach this. Second thing that Matthew's trying to teach is that Jesus is a new and greater Moses. He is a new and greater Moses. Friends, you have to understand, Matthew is writing to Jewish people. He's a Jewish man writing to Jewish people, though he intends a lot of you, like Gentiles or non-Jewish people, to listen and learn as well. And what he's trying to teach them is, hey, you guys know about Moses, firsthand, secondhand, not firsthand that they lived back then, but that in the sense that they heard it or they understood it from others. They heard about Moses. He's like, I want you to understand who Jesus is as an even greater understanding of who, recognition of who he is as a savior. Just as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, tried to kill every male infant in Egypt, so Herod, king of Judea, ordered the male infants in Bethlehem should be killed. Just as Moses was forced from Egypt because Pharaoh wanted to kill him, so Jesus had to leave Judea because Herod wanted to kill him. Just as God had commanded Moses to return to Egypt since those seeking his life had died, so God's angel ordered Joseph to return to Israel since those who were seeking to kill the child had died. But as Moses went up the mountain to receive God's word, Jesus goes up the mountain in the Sermon on the Mount to teach God's word. He doesn't simply explain revelation, he gives revelation. Jesus is not simply like Moses, he is greater than Moses. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He fulfills the law that Moses had given, and he was even transfigured in this humanity to show his deity. At that point in Matthew, when there's a cameo, you remember that moment back in the day 
where there's Jesus at that time, and he's being transfigured into his divine state, and it's just Peter, James, and John. All the other disciples are not there, and they see him in his glory. Who shows up as cameo witnesses to the deity of Christ? Moses and Elijah. In fact, Peter's so overwhelmed by it, he's like, should we get some stones and make a temple here? I mean, this is like nothing we've ever seen before. Interestingly, Peter would later say in 2 Peter, we have something even better than that revelation. We have the word of God. People are so often tempted today to want to close this revelation, to hope for some other personal revelation, is to misunderstand the whole priority and supremacy of this revelation. Don't take it from me. Listen to Peter himself. Third thing that Matthew's trying to teach us is that Jesus offers salvation to anyone, not just to Jewish people. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he is, man, he's really making some people mad. Uh, He's making them mad because he's correcting a lot of abuses of the law of God. He repeatedly says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard this said, but I say to you. He keeps correcting the distortions and the perverted interpretations to justify their own actions. In fact, as chapter 7 ends, you notice what's said at the very end in verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. That's one thing to say it, but can he actually prove it? Well, he doesn't just prove he offers salvation. He proves who he offers salvation to. While this might be dated in your memory if you were with us and unknown to others of you who were not with us, Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 is basically Jesus proving it. He said it, now he's going to prove it. And he shows he has that power. And he's healing at every possible level. He's casting out demons. He's hearing the paralytic. He's raising the dead. It is profound. But what's even more profound is who he's doing it with. In fact, just to get a cameo of this, what it looks like, go back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5, and a rather provocative interaction that would have shocked the Jews at best and offended them at worst. Here's Jesus himself in verse 5 saying, when he had, Matthew writing this about Jesus, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, this is a Roman soldier, not Jewish, who's overwhelmingly occupying the land. They're they're, they're overrun by another another country. The Romans are ruling over the Jews. The centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out, they'll be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Friends, he is saying salvation is for everybody and anybody who believes they need to be saved. And he teaches a lesson on faith, which is the foundation of salvation on Christ. He teaches that by getting the lesson from a non-Jewish person and then teaching all the Jewish listeners, this man has a lot to teach the rest of you about faith. You have to understand, they would have called Gentiles dogs, logs for hell. And Jesus is saying, actually, this person has a lot to teach all of you. In fact, furthermore, I'm saying from as far as the east is from the west, all around, these people are going to come and be brought together and sit at the table, have fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. And others of you who think you're going to be there, you're going to be cast out. This continually theme goes throughout it. Go back to Matthew 28. I say back because we were there last week. So in this case, turn ahead to Matthew 28. From Matthew 8 to now Matthew 28. What's the very last thing that Matthew records that Jesus says? The text we looked at last week, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, who's the them? It's the disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all tribes. Referring to the Israelites? No. Of all nations. Of all nations. Matthew wanted to show that for the Jews who had rejected Jesus, God would judge them. He also instead would raise up a new people who are multi-ethnic in their identity. Friends, one of my prayers for us at Grace Church is that we don't fall into the trap that's very easy, even in a city like ours, to become a particular subset of people in our city. You know, like we're the Cuban church, or we're the Nicaraguan church, or we're the Haitian church, or we're the Afro-Caribbean church, or we're the Latin church, or we're the Brazilian church, or we're the young church, or we're the single church, or we're the married church. No, we are a gathering of redeemed sinners, foreshadowing of heaven from every tribe, tongue, and nation by which God will gather people together. Now, here's the beauty of this. The beauty of this is if we tried to do this in, say, North Dakota, it might be a bit difficult. Not a lot of pool to draw from there. But Miami? God has brought us together in this city geographically. The question for us as Christians is will we come together in community, spiritually, relationally, lovingly, to be committed to one another as a display of our love for Christ and our love for each other. And in that, we testify of the power of the good news of Jesus and the foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. All nations, even being seen here this morning, well, not all the nations, but a lot of them. 
The big question you should be asking right now, and maybe some of you are like, I've been asking this for like the last 10 minutes. So what? What is this, Eric? Is this just like a, hey, uh, thank you for bringing me up on my Bible illiteracy. I feel a little bit more educated. That was helpful. If I happen to get into a pop quiz tomorrow, when I ask, if someone's asking me about Matthew, I know it's not a person. Well, it actually was a person, but it's what's being said in print, and I can tell you what it's about. But how does this have any bearing on my life? 2022 in Miami, why does this matter for me today? And I don't mean to speak disrespectfully about God or his word, but why does this matter? Well, let me answer that question for you and tell you why this matters. Matthew's trying to teach us several things. Let me give you three of them. Number one, be amazed. Be amazed at the sovereign, wise, and loving plan of God to bring salvation to the world. I have to confess to you, um, there is a difference in my marriage between my wife and myself in a lot of different ways, one of which is, my wife won't mind me saying this, uh, my wife is directly challenged uh, in a profoundly, I suppose, good way, because I feel needed. It's just like a way to kind of boost up my self-esteem, I suppose. Whereas I just have an ability to kind of know directly where things are and how to get there. And yet, I am an avid user of apps like Apple Maps or Waze and how to get from point A to point B. Why? Because I don't want to like, take the scenic route. I want to get there as quickly as possible. I want to avoid accidents. I want to avoid you know, traffic. I want to get there as quickly as possible. And so whenever I open that app, it's going to give me some options, and I'm going to pick the one. I don't care if I've got to pay tolls. Tolls is worth it to me. I'll pay tolls. Just get me there. But inevitably, what can happen at times, it arrives later in the middle of the route that was not expected at the beginning of the route, is something takes place. From where I'm starting to where I'm ending, something takes place. An accident takes place, or traffic backs up more than enough, and it will give me an option. You know what this is. I give you an option to go a different route. It'll save two minutes, or if you go this way, it'll save four minutes, and it'll give you a chance to correct it in light of new information, and it changes the route. Friends, do you realize God's never had to change his route? He's never been like, well, I, I'm here, and I want to get to there, and I think I've got enough information to get us going on this road trip through life, but I don't know what's about to come my way, and I don't know what they're about to do, and I don't know what these people are about to do, and as I learn more, well, then I'll communicate more, and as I communicate more, I hope they do more, and if they do more, then we might see more, and if I see more, then I can tell more of what should happen, and so God's up there kind of wringing his hands, and oh, man, that's a, that's a new update. Let me change it. God has never had to change his plans once. Why? Well, he's omniscient. That means a fancy word for saying he knows all things. And that's not just impressive alone. He's also omnipotent. With like That's a big word meaning what? He's all powerful. He doesn't just know everything. He can do anything. And the record of human history in the Bible is this magical, poetic, unbelievable history of God moving entire nations of people. Not just like a prophet here and like a mom and dad there, like kings. Like, okay, now is your time? Okay, now you're done. That's like a whole people group. And it's profound. We should be amazed. Isaiah 46, verse 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. 
and I will accomplish all my purposes. Well, why does this matter? Well, consider the greater to the lesser. If God has got this whole world in his hands, he's got your life in his hands. And while it might seem mysterious to you at best, maybe even unkind and unloving to you at worst, he is, if you're one of his children, working all things together for your good. You can be amazed at how he is working, not just in the world, but even in your own life. Secondly, be convinced. Don't just be amazed, be convinced. When you go to the airport and you travel, you inevitably are going to be asked pretty early after you arrive when you go through this line back and forth for what? Your government ID. They want you to give them your license or your passport. They're asking for one form of ID, but it's an important ID. And that ID, whether or not you have it, determines whether or not you get to fly or not. Now, interestingly, in order to get that ID, that government-issued ID, a driver's license or a passport, earlier in your life, at some point, you had to have go to some other agency where you had to present, oh, I don't know, maybe four, five, six different evidences of your identity, you know, like your birth certificate, your social security card, maybe proof of residence, and other type of information. And enough of those things presented by which they'd be like, okay, who you say you are is actually who you are, and... Therefore, we'll issue an ID saying, hey, we think that Eric is this guy. He's not lying. Who he says he is, here's his picture, here's information. You can trust us that we're telling the truth about him, and so therefore, you should let him get on this airplane. Now, imagine standing in line for eight hours at the Department of Motor Vehicles, finally getting called up, not just having four or five proofs of your identification, but having a box of hundreds of informational data points to present who you are. And that person saying, I'm not convinced. Be honest, you would lose your mind. I would. I mean, it might kind of feel like a, you know, Jesus with the money changers flipping tables over. I, I don't know, there might be a table flipping moment. I don't advocate for violence, just to be clear. But it would feel so overwhelmingly, well, shall we say, frustrating, which is a code term for, I don't know, maybe angry or something like that. How much more could I possibly present to you to convince you that I am who I am? Friends, to be clear, what Matthew's doing, he's not presenting simply one form of ID for Jesus of Nazareth. He's not simply saying, here's my best four or five evidences of his deity. He is presenting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of evidences that who he says he is, he actually is. And not just for the people at that time, but the people who would come after, like in our time, who would read it. It's undeniable. In fact, there's more historical validation for Jesus Nazareth's existence, ironically, than there is actually for yours. I'm not even kidding. But you're like, but I'm right here. I know I exist. Says who? I'm just saying. Says who? And yet, they would reject. Jesus, having waited thousands of years to be born, then 30 years to begin his public ministry, shows up with thousands of proofs of his deity and most of the people are not convinced. Why? Because they lack for information? No. No. 
because pride blinded their eyes from seeing and accepting. Thomas Watson said, pride is a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates it. It is idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. How many evidences does it take to convince you that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one in whom salvation is found? Most of the Jewish leaders at that time would never allow themselves to be convinced, no matter what he said, no matter what he did. Why? Because it required humility to simply say the following, I was wrong and you were right. But the implication of that statement was too great for them to want to pursue. That's not just true for the Jewish leaders 2,000 years ago. That's true for people perhaps sitting in this room right now. You don't lack for evidences. Third, be submitted. Don't just be amazed. Don't just be convinced. Be submitted. Being a disciple meant not only being a learner, but also being a follower. A lot of people learned a lot from Jesus and even liked doing so. Jesus drew crazy crowds. Like, he would be like a serious leader on social media today. What he said would be overwhelming. When people were with them, they'd want to get selfies all day long. To be associated with Jesus in this way would make your popularity rise. But those crowds do not equal followers. They at best equal watchers, at least equal watchers, I should say, maybe at most learners, but not yet committed disciples. There are people who seemingly want to hear from him, but don't want to become like him, at least not by submitting to him. The same is true today. More people enjoy learning about Jesus and from Jesus than actually follow Jesus. It's not to say that salvation is by works. Salvation is clear as we're in that there are three profoundly good testimonies, is by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his grace alone, and for his glory alone. But nevertheless, salvation, as James says, that is by faith, will show itself in its works. If we're disciples, we follow those to whom we are disciple of. Discipleship is about submission. Jesus said himself in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The problem for a lot of us, even as Christians, is we do not like submitting. Just be honest. And I just want to say it to those of you who are not Christians, if you're struggling sometimes in studying Christianity because of our examples of it, sometimes we give good examples and bad examples, just to be quite clear. We all need a Savior. Some of us are ready to accept that, others are not. There is only one Savior, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah. Problem is self gets in the way. Richard Baxter said, self is the most treacherous enemy and the most insinuating deceiver in the world. Of all other vices, it is both the hardest to find out and the hardest to cure. So friends, here's the reality. The reality is Matthew is clear. 
He's led along by the Holy Spirit to communicate clearly who Jesus is. And the question is whether or not we're going to do anything in light of what we have learned here. And as a church, we continue to march along day after day, week after week, week, month after month, year after year, listening to God's word and living in light of the freedom and joy that comes from it. That only begins by submitting to it, finding faith and peace from it. Matthew aspires to provide convincing evidence that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies, that Jesus is the king in the Davidic line about whom the prophets wrote, that Jesus is the savior of the world to anyone who would believe. The question is, do you believe? And the question is, if you say you do, how will you and I then live accordingly? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.